Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and learn to love Christian history and hymnody. I'm Jared Brummett, audio engineer and editor, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you can find Rob's blog post, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. This week we have a special bonus episode where Rob delivers a message at Kindred Church in Anaheim, California, describing the Bible's role in the defining moments in American history. If you want to check out Rob's book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America, you can find it wherever books are sold. Now, here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. I simply cannot believe that on a Sunday night, we have this many people. I am thrilled with this church. I just can't, can't believe. I can't believe how wonderful you are. And of course, all of the children are here too somewhere else, including my two grandchildren uh, who have worn me out this weekend. I didn't realize I just turned 70 and taking a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old is no easy task across the country and through two days at Knott's Ferry Farm. And I did read today that there was a riot last night at Knox Ferry Farm, but I want to assure you my grandchildren did not start it. <laughs> we were a little upset that the Ferris wheel wasn't running, but we didn't start the fracas. In fact, um, one of the three of us gave out early and we had to go back to the hotel. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it's been a wonderful time and this Church, I'll tell you, I go to a lot of churches now and speak, but there is something really special about this one. Uh, there is something here that I've not, that I seldom sense, and I just um, treasure it and treasure the memory of it. Um, we'll be going back to Nashville tomorrow. I was supposed to send ahead books because we usually have a book table, and I've had deadlines and so many other things that I forgot to send in the order for the books to come out here. But I hope that you'll go to my website, which is robertjmorgan.com, and see all of our resources there. And all of my books are available um, on Audible um, or on Amazon or uh, Christian book distributors or from your local bookstore. And I think I saw today in the program that you have a bookstore here, and I've I should have uh, just followed up with that because usually when I find a church that has a bookstore, we champion that and do all of the sales through that. So, so wherever you get your books, then please check them out. And also I have these one-minute uh, Bible studies every day on social media, uh, on Facebook and Instagram. I'm going through the book of Isaiah right now in one-minute increments. And this is a helpful. You know, not many families anymore have family devotions. It's sort of a thing of the past. But when you take your kids in, you can just say, let's see what Pastor Morgan says today and listen to that 59-second segment, talk about it a little bit and have prayer. And, uh, and that's one way of jump-starting family devotions in a very simple, easy way. I also have a podcast uh, of Bible study materials, so you can follow along with that. And, um, and I appreciate um, your letting me uh, sort of tell you about these resources. 
uh, the 50 final events in world history I mentioned this morning is my most recent book. But tonight we're going to talk about this one, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. I'm often asked if America is a Christian nation. And the answer is no. Not if you mean that our nation has an established church uh, state-sponsored church like the UK or like uh, most of Europe had throughout most of history. We, we do not have a church that is, is uh, supported and endorsed and, and, um, and overseen by the government. Uh, and, and no, not in the sense that most of our people, uh, our citizens are Christian or, or that we require citizens to be Christians. But there is a very unique story that is true only for the United States of America of all of the nations that have ever existed apart from Israel. And that is that the hand of God in the establishing of this nation from the very beginning founded it upon Judeo-Christian principles. And that was primarily because of the Puritan migration of 1620 through 1640 or 1645. Now, we're often told, it's, you know, the thing that, that everybody is talking about now, that slavery came into America in 1619 at Jamestown. And that's true. I mean, there was slavery before then, but especially at Jamestown. But Jamestown was a secular endeavor. It was people from the old world coming over to try to uh, get food and, and money and gold and furs and skins and resources and everything else. And there was very little Christian about Jamestown. But the very next year after Jamestown, not 1619, but 1620, is when the pilgrims came on the Mayflower. And from the very beginning, they established a foundation that fought against the slavery that came in the year before. So, this story is getting reversed in our culture. In fact, the first great advocate for human rights was a believer. His name was Antonio de Montesinos. And when the Spanish conquistadors came in and Columbus and all of the others, and they enslaved the native, the, the, the indigenous peoples, then it was Antonio de Montesinos who stood up in the Dominican Republic and said, in the name of Christ, this is wrong. And Christians have been fighting for civil rights ever since then. The greatest civil rights issue of our day is the right of preborn children to live. And it's Christians who are waging that campaign. So Christians have always, upon this basis of, of um, Judeo-Christian beliefs, uh, unless they were wrong, and occasionally there were Christians who were wrong, but the great body of good theology that came in with the Puritans provided for us a Judeo-Christian foundation for this nation that is remarkable. So here's what happened. There were various explorers who came in, and, and the different empires of Europe were trying to establish a beachhead, and you had the Spanish, and you had the Portuguese, and you had the British, and you had the others, and it was the British that came down and, and established uh, the Lost Colony. And then they established Jamestown, which was a mess. Uh, but in 1620, 
persecution broke out violently against the Puritans. Now, the Puritans were people who belonged to the Church of England for the most part, but they wanted it purified because the Church of England had as its head the king or the queen. And whoever that might be, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, King James, whoever it was, it was still dominated by a pagan person who genuinely, it would not appear from history, was a true believer, especially King James uh, the fourth of Scotland, who became King James the first of. So, so the Puritans said, this isn't right in this church, that it is now just simply a matter of the state. We need to be more like the New Testament church. And this was not met with favor. King James, who uh, issued the King James version of the Bible, it's named for him, uh, would not allow the Puritans to have any of their requests made except for that one request for a new translation of the Bible at the uh, conference in Hampton Court in 1604. He did say, you can go ahead and have a new translation of the Bible, and it came out in 1611, and they dedicated it to him because he was the king, but he was a scoundrel. But he just drove them out of the land, and the Puritans, who were especially fervent, were the separatists. And they said, we cannot even stay in the established church. We ought to be autonomous congregations, not under state control, and with clergy that aren't paid by the king, and the king's not the head of the church. It's just that Jesus is our savior, and we want to meet together. And they were called the separatists because they wanted to separate, and they were Puritans who went a step further. And so because of that persecution, we have, beginning with the Mayflower, we have Christians, deeply educated Christians, the highest educated group of people that you can imagine, many of them educated at Cambridge, and they just started coming to the new world, giving up everything to come here to New England. The Puritans, you know, they, the Mayflower ended up in Boston um, at Plymouth Rock. And, and so you have these tens of thousands of well-educated, scholarly lawyers and pastors and educators who deeply loved the Lord, and they came in the tens of thousands, and they populated New England. And suddenly you had a nation populated with people who desperately wanted freedom of religion and who knew their Bibles as well as anybody in the history of the world had ever known their Bibles, and that provided the Judeo-Christian foundation of America. Now, what happened is that after this Puritan migration um, uh, had, had come and gone, and the other 13 colonies also had uh, been established, the, all, all of the 13 colonies had been established, they weren't particularly close. I mean, the, the, the colonies were not united. It was, you know, they were just 13 different political entities with a very loose confederation binding them together, mainly just that we're all on the, in this new world together. But there was a lot of differences between them because in the South, there was slavery. In the North, they were, they were violently, uh, I shouldn't say violently, but they were fervently uh, abolitionist. And, uh, but, but as time went by, everything waned and the nation became 
divided, uh, it wasn't even a nation, the Confederacy, uh, uh, Confederation of, uh, of Colonies uh, uh, became divided and there wasn't a lot of spiritual zeal. But that's when one of the miracles of history happened, the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening of the early 1700s was, it's hard to describe, it is like a biblical revival. Now, the Bible's handbook on revival is Second Chronicles, and that gives us one revival after another. The writer of Second Chronicles is just very optimistic about the possibility of national revivals continuing to occur. And uh, he gives us the formula for revival. It's just wonderful. And all of that took place with the first great awakening. And the great preacher, George Whitfield, from England, came over and he preached for the rest of his life. He would go back and forth to England. But he would attract incredible crowds I mean, there's way, no way of describing it. He became the most famous. He, some people say he was the first celebrity. And certainly in this world, there was nobody in the new world who didn't know George Whitfield, and everybody wanted to hear him. He was a tremendous orator, and his great text was from John chapter 3, you must be born again. One lady asked him, Mr. Whitfield, why do you always preach on you must be born again? And he said, because, madam, you must be. And in this book, I tell an account of a couple. There was a man, um, uh, Nathan Cole, who badly wanted to hear Whitfield. Everybody was buzzing with reports about him in all of the 13 colonies. I mean, he traveled everywhere. He was a young man, just, you know, a teenager and then in his early 20s. But he had a voice he could be heard a mile away. And he had a tremendous oratorical magnetism to him. And everybody wanted to hear him. And Nathan Cole uh, was out working in his farm. And somebody went galloping by on a horse and said, uh, Whitfield is preaching in Middletown. And Nathan Cole said, I ran to the uh, barn and I got my horse saddle as quickly as I could. And I ran back and told my wife, get on the horse with me. We're going to hear Whitfield. And we took off galloping as though we were running for our lives. And when the horse would give out, I'd get off and run beside it a while until it would regain its breath, and then, then I'd get back on. But we were so afraid of missing Whitfield, and pretty soon, the whole sky was orange, and everything was orange, and the trees were orange, and the mountains were orange, and we realized so many horses were galloping as hard as we were that the clouds of dust had covered everything orange. And my wife said, our clothes are going to be ruined. And he said, don't worry about it, we've got to hear Whitfield. And on the river, the riverboats were disgorging people there, and thousands came. And he preached that day, and Nathan Cole and his wife were saved. And multitudes of people came to Christ. And this great awakening not only revived America spiritually and sent the gospel where it had never been before, but it gave the colonies a spiritual unity which paved the way for the Declaration of Independence. And historians will tell you, I think if they're honest, 
that there would not have been a declaration of independence if there had not been a great awakening. It was that revival that brought together the spiritual desire of the colonies and a determination for spiritual liberty. And when they found spiritual liberty, they wanted freedom of worship, and they wanted freedom of speech, and they wanted the freedoms that led to the Declaration of Independence. Well, after that, of course, God raised up George Washington. And Washington, they say today that he was a deist. That's something that was uh, invented in the 20th century. There's a lot of historians doing revisionist studies. But George Washington was an Anglican. He believed in the creeds. He believed and said them. He spoke uh, of them. Uh, and um, there's just no question about his theology and his doctrine. He was an Anglican. And he believed very much in the providence of God and the way God protected his life. I don't have time to tell you all of this story. But he was... Uh, uh, commissioned and sent up to take over after the Battle of Bunker Hill. But I want to tell you what happened with that, um, with the, the beginning of the Revolutionary War, because I don't know why people don't know this. There was a pastor in Lexington named Jonas Clark, and he was an evangelical pastor. The, you know, his, he came out of that Puritan stock, and he had this church outside of Boston in Lexington. And he was a preacher, and the church was very strong. And when the British occupied Boston, then the two men who were the most, who were the real patriots and had the price on their head was John Hancock and Samuel Adams. And so they had to leave Boston, and where did they go? They went out to Lexington to stay in the parsonage of Pastor Jonas Clark. And they were there one evening, hiding from the British, when Paul Revere went riding by, saying, the British are coming, and they're coming after Adams, and they're coming after Hancock, and they'd better go further into the frontier if they're going to escape. And the two patriots looked at Jonas Clark and said, will your church and will your people stand up against the British? And Clark said, I've prepared them for this very hour. We're going to fight for freedom. And so the two patriots fled. Jonas Clark got up in the middle of the night, rang the church bell, gathered his people. And when the mist began to rise early in the dawn of that morning and the British redcoats appeared, the first shots of the Revolutionary War, the shot heard around the world, was fired at a pastor and at his church and at that congregation. They were standing up for liberty. And by the time it was over, I think seven of the deacons were dead beneath the windows of the church where they had fallen. But it was Christians who were fired up and occupying the pulpits and involved in politics and saying, we've got to fight for our freedom. And the way that America won the revolution is implausible. It can only be a miracle of God. You, for example, when... when in New York City when, uh, I know many of you have been to New York City, it's on the other, it's a long way from you, but you, you, have, uh, you have the Brooklyn Bridge. And that is almost exactly 
where the evacuation of the American forces happened, when Washington's troops began um, just collapsing before the British onslaught on Long Island and in Brooklyn. And Washington had to get his troops off of that piece of land into Manhattan, as we call it today, and there was really no way of doing it. And so they came up with the flotilla of boats and they started, and the winds kept the British fleet down, you know, in, in New York Harbor where they couldn't quite get up to where the Brooklyn Bridge was. And all through the night, the American forces were evacuating. Otherwise, they would have been annihilated and the war would have been over. But when the sun came up, most of the army was still in Brooklyn. But a strange fog arose. And it was so thick that under that fog, the remainder of the American forces were able to evacuate. They went up Manhattan. They went over into New Jersey. They fled to fight another day. But as soon as they had evacuated, the fog lifted. That sort of thing happened over and over and over again. And so America won the revolution. But what happened next is very odd. You know, there was this confederacy, this our terms of confederacy that, that didn't really work and they needed a constitution. And so the constitutional convention met, but it's, it seemed implausible that, that these new states could come up with a constitution because there were so many differences, big states, small states, northern states, southern states, uh, abolitionist states, slavery states. They came to loggerheads at that constitutional convention hall. I took the boys at Knott's Ferry Farm into the replica there, into the room. Maybe you've been there. But the, um, uh, they just couldn't seem to get anything done. And that's when Benjamin Franklin stood up. And he hadn't said very much, he was very old. But he struggled up to his feet. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, how is it, sirs, that we have failed to pray to the Father of heavenly lights to give us light to know what to do. He said, if a bird cannot fall to the air without his notice, it is not likely that an empire can arise without his blessings. He said, I make a motion that we pray. But even that motion failed. But the next Sunday, George Washington took the delegates down the street and they gathered on their knees, earnestly praying, and the pastor of the church there prayed that God would give them guidance. And then they united together in praying the Lord's Prayer aloud. And they came back and James Madison said it was almost like a miracle how the Constitution came together. And when Washington was inaugurated, and I begin my book with this story. When he was inaugurated in New York City there on Wall Street, you can go and see, well, the, the actual place is gone, but they have, you know, recreated where he was standing when he took the oath of office. The first thing he did after he took his hand off the Bible, having given the oath of office, was to stoop over and kiss the Bible. He understood that America's freedom and the values and the Judeo-Christian heritage had made the nation possible. 
But not everybody felt that way. And Thomas Paine, who had written, um, uh, he was the, the great writer of the revolution, uh, but he wrote The Age of Reason, and he brought French infidelity into the schools. And so America, after the Constitution, went into a tailspin in terms of Christianity. At one point, only 5% of Americans, it is estimated, were attending church. And in many schools, there were no Christians. They were all atheists. I mean, it was truly as bad or worse demographically than it was now in terms of Christianity. I think it was a good deal worse. Uh, John Marshall uh, on the Supreme Court said he didn't think that Christianity could ever be revived as a force in America. So because of the, uh, the French infidels and the atheism that suddenly came in while America was very busy building a new nation, then Christianity just plunged. But then a remarkable thing happened. The second Great Awakening. There was another revival. And this one started at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia. Among, there were a couple of students there who were reading and studying their Bibles. One was a genuine believer and the other one came to be a believer. And when it was discovered that there were two Christians on that campus, it caused a riot, a literal riot. And the president of the university said, how is it that there can be a riot because on a university there is divergence of opinions that Christians have a right to pray. And within weeks, most of the student body had been converted. And that revival started with college campuses all up and down the eastern seaboard. At the same time, over in the frontier in Kentucky, there were the camp meetings that suddenly, out of nowhere, thousands of people started coming. And the Methodist and the Baptist and all of them coming together in great movements. And the nation came back to God with another great awakening. And that established the moral values of our nation until my lifetime and yours. Now, it's corroding again, and we need another great awakening. But America was born between the first and second great awakenings. This is the only nation I think in all of history, that was ever created between two massive revivals, the first and second Great Awakening. Well, that's why we say that America has a Judeo-Christian foundation, which is matchless because we have the ethics of the God of holiness here, and blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Now, I want to end, I'm skipping over most of the rest of history, but I want to go right to, um, to Ronald Reagan, whose library is not far from here. As I was researching this book, I found a little reference to a little-known letter that Reagan had written when he was president. And it was found, actually, when Nancy Reagan died, uh, you know, it wasn't far from here, um, but um, I forget that area that they lived in, but, but when, when she died, they found a box of letters in her closet, and this letter was in the box, and my agent, who was here this morning, 
his father actually, Celia Yates, knew the archivist of the uh, Reagan Library, and we got permission to use this letter in this book so long as we wrote it exactly the way Reagan did, with misspelled words and punctuations and everything. But it is written to his father-in-law, Nancy's father, Dr. Loyal Davis, who was a doctor, a medical doctor, and who was an atheist, and who was dying of cancer. And this is the letter in his own scribbled handwriting on White House stationery that Ronald Reagan wrote to him on August the 7th of 1982. Dear Loyal, I hope you'll forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write to you ever since we talked on the phone. I am aware of the strain you are under and believe with all my heart there is help for that. First, I want to tell you of a personal experience I've kept to myself for a long time. During my first year, of governor, as governor of California, you'll recall the situation I found. It was almost as bad as the one in Washington today. It seemed as if the problems were endless and insolvable. Then I found myself with an ulcer. And all those years at Warner Brothers, no one had been able to give me an ulcer. And I felt ashamed as if it were a sign of weakness on my part. My doctor, John Sharp, had me on Maalocks and I lived with a constant pain that ranged from discomfort to extremely sharp attacks. This went on for months. I had a bottle of Maalox on my desk, in my briefcase, and of course at home. Then one morning I got up, went into the bathroom, reached for the bottle as always, and something happened. I knew I didn't need it. I'd gone to bed with the usual pain the night before, but I knew that morning I was healed. The Maylocks went back on the shelf. That morning when I arrived at the office, Helen brought me my mail. The first letter I opened was from a lady, a stranger in the southern part of our state. She had written to tell me that she was one of a group who met every day to pray for me. Believe it or not, the second letter was from a man, again a stranger, in the other end of the state telling me he was a part of a group that prayed weekly for me. Within the hour, a young fellow from the legal staff came over to my office on some routine matter. On the way out, he paused in the door and said, Gov, I think maybe you'd like to know some of us on the staff come in early every morning and get together to pray for you. Coincidence? I don't think so. A couple of weeks later, Nancy and I went down to L.A. and had our annual checkup. John Sharp, a little puzzled, told me, I no longer had an ulcer but added there was no indication that I'd ever had one. There is a line in the Bible, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I will be also. Loyal, I know of your feeling, your doubt, but could I just impose on you a little longer? Some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of a Messiah. They said he would be born in a lowly place would proclaim himself the Son of God and would be put to death for saying that. All in all, there are a total of 123 specific prophecies about his life, all of which came true. Crucifixion was unknown in those times, yet it was foretold that he would be nailed to a cross of wood. And one of the predictions was that he would be born of a virgin. 
Now, I know that this is probably the hardest for you to accept as a doctor. The only answer that can be given for it is a miracle. But, Loyal, I don't find that as great a miracle as the actual history of his life. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and a faker suffer the death he did when all he had to do to save himself was to admit he'd been lying? The miracle is that a young man of 30 years, without credentials as a scholar or priest, began preaching on street corners. He owned nothing but the clothes on his back, and he didn't travel beyond a circle of about 100 miles across. He did this for only three years, and then he was executed as a common criminal. But for 2,000 years, he's had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived all put together. The apostle John said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish but have eternal life. We've been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we have done all we can, when we've come to the end of our strength and abilities, and he will give us the help. We only have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness and mercy. Loyal, you and Edith have known a great love, more than many other have been permitted to know. This will not end with the end of this life. We've been promised this is only part of a life and that a greater life of greater glory awaits us. It awaits you together one day, and all that is required is that you believe and tell God and put yourself in his hands. Love, Ronnie. Isn't that a remarkable letter from an evangelist who happened to be the president of the United States? So Christianity is not lost in America. Everywhere I go, I'm seeing a new generation rising up. I'm sensing a revival is coming. I'm seeing young people as zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ as any other generation. I had a generation, the Jesus movement, that I grew up in that was zealous for the Lord, but I have young people in my home all the time, and I see them at churches like this, and they are just as excited and just as indomitable and just as intrepid for the Lord as we were, and they will not be intimidated, and this world is not going to be able to stop them. So we just say, revive us again. Our nation has many problems, but they're not primarily political. They're not primarily even moral. They are spiritual. And the only answer is spiritual. And the only answer is Jesus Christ. So let's let that revival, it might as well begin here as anywhere. And let's let it begin with us. Well, thank you. God bless you for letting me be here, and may God bless America. Thank you.